In a world where people are famous for doing nothing, we're here to discover the ordinary individuals who take giant leaps to do something extraordinary. Welcome to Moving Forward. Hi listeners, this is Kristen Epper with Moving Forward. Thank you so much for listening today. In order to express our appreciation, we'd like to share a free gift with you. Simply text Moving Forward to 33444 in order to receive your 10-step checklist to building your financial ocean. That's Moving Forward, one word, to 33444. Standard text messaging rates apply. And now, on with our program. Welcome to this week's episode of Moving Forward. I am your host, Krista Nepper, and today my guest is Natalie Vale. And typically I like to introduce my guests, but Natalie has so many different and specific skills. Natalie, I'm going to actually turn it over to you to answer the question, what is it that you do, as though you were meeting somebody for the first time? Well, hi, Kristen, and thanks for having me on your show this week. I am a licensed acupuncturist, Chinese herbalist, certified energy healer, psychic medium, feng shui consultant, birth doula, and ordained spiritualist minister. So I have a lot of different holistic activities that I can pull from, lots of certifications and trainings uh, within alternative health. I love that. And I want to get to all of the certifications because it's so people, you know, talk about being an intuitive or they might see Eastern medicine as something that people just kind of fall into without understanding the depth of the training. And when you spoke to me about how much work and school and education and your background, it's pretty astounding. But first and foremost, I want to talk to you about how you discovered your gift as an intuitive. How did that come to be? How old were you? The first time I recognized that I was an intuitive was when I was about four years old and I was in my bedroom at my parents' house and I was laying on my bed. All of a sudden, I saw a huge face come over the top of my head and it said, you know, hello or good evening or something along those lines. And being four years old and seeing a floating head really scared me a lot. And so I remember screaming at the top of my lungs, taking the covers up over my head and just hiding in my bed, (laughs) praying that it would go away. So um, my parents obviously rushed in to see why I was screaming. And I told my mom what had happened. And she just explained to me like, oh, this seems like this could have been a visitor or something that we don't necessarily want. So we just need to ask them to go away. And I did. And then they did. So it was pretty um, terrifying. I would say my first um, (laughs) recording, my first remembered experience. Um, And that kind of set the stage for um, a little bit of my fear as a, as a child, being able to see things, hear things that not other many people did. Um, and having a little bit of fear around that. I was really lucky, though, that my parents were really open and receptive to everything that I was telling them and would go out of their way to help explain what these things were to me or if they didn't know themselves uh, to do the research to find out how to best help me. That's amazing um, because, yeah, I know that when you first told me that story, you know, I'm far older than four and it terrified me. So I think, too, the fact that your parents were so encouraging, did they really foster your intuitive abilities? How did that play out? Yes, absolutely. There was something that my mom knew was different about me from a very young age. I think um, the very first story she'll tell about me is when I was a couple of weeks old and she went to Kansas to visit her mother to show me off. And uh, (laughs) I, uh, well, you know, new babies. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, 
So I, and I'm, I'm the first, I'm the first of her children and, and the first grandchild in that family. And, um, I was looking at a whole bunch of artwork on the walls and studying the art, really intently looking at it. And, ba- you know, babies don't have very good eyesight. No. So the fact that I was able to hold a gaze and hold images and I would stare at each one for, you know, a length of maybe like 20 seconds and then look at the next one. It was a very repeated thing. So my mom knew from almost the very beginning that something was different about me, that I was a lot more aware and um, a lot more mindful than most children. So they did absolutely encourage these gifts within me. And like I said, they would try to do their best to explain different phenomenon to me or to make sense of things for me that I found confusing. Okay. Um, And so then how did, as you grew up, how did that influence your ability to take hold or, you know, come to terms with your gift? My parents really... um, helped me because my mom was actually a, uh, what do you call it? She was a, um, certified, uh, therapeutic touch practitioner and a, a nurse, a registered nurse. Okay. And so when I was about eight years old, she would teach me a lot about chakras and auras and about energy healing. So the first time I ever did my, my own energy healing on somebody else was when I was eight. So wow. I was able to, yeah, I was actually, um, I grew up uh, Roman Catholic and I was in church and I could actually see auras around the priests. So I could already see auras and see colors and I already kind of understood what that was. And then when my mom explained to me like, oh, that's just someone's energy field, then it made a lot more sense to me about how to transfer energy because I was already seeing it. That's amazing. I mean, and what a gift because we didn't have those discussions in my household, (laughs) to be honest with you. So to be able to recognize that you know, a level of uh, supernatural intelligence, I want to say, in a child and say, oh, yeah, that's perfectly normal and to foster it. I think that's such a rare thing in our country. I totally agree. There are not not so much in the newer generations. A lot of what we're calling yeah. the, the the crystal children or the rainbow children. Yeah. Their parents are already um, – they're like our age, you know, so they're very uh, tapped in, usually very in, intuitive and they're or children of Generation X. And it's it's very, very different versus when the baby boomers had children. Um, it's, it's not as common to see parents of the baby boomer generation that – really understood what was happening unless, um, they were kind of hip to the whole new age thing in the sixties and seventies. So, um, I was, I was very fortunate, um, that both my parents were kind of on their own spiritual path, um, around the time I was a child and kind of rediscovering who they are and their definition of God. So I got to go along on that ride with them. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, it was a together process. I would definitely say that my mom made the biggest impact for me because she was, a uh, my my first teacher. I would say she's my first teacher. She taught me a lot about metaphysical topics, um, how to protect myself, how to transfer energy, and how to ask questions and how to interpret dreams, things like that. Very cool. And then when you became an acupuncturist and a Chinese herbalist and a doula, so there's so much going on. Tell me a little bit about your background and your education as far as that is concerned, because I don't think people understand the extent to which you have to go to school and the licensing process for any of those aspects of your job? 
Yes. So I actually went to UC Berkeley for my undergrad and I graduated summa cum laude with a bachelor's in anthropology and a double minor in music and Japanese studies. And then from there, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Because I'm like, that's a random yeah. combination of, you know, a yeah. little bit of everything. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was setting myself up to be an ethnomusicologist and um, then I kind of lost steam on that. So um, it didn't really work out. Um but uh, from from there, I, I went on kind of a little discovery journey about kind of realizing what I wanted to do with my life. And when I found Chinese um, medicine, I remember the first thing I saw online was uh, all these pictures of these white people putting needles inside of other white people. And I thought to myself, <laughs> what the heck is this? <laughs> I was like, these people must be crazy. What are, what are they doing? Um, but then it, it came in stronger and stronger for me. And I started reading more about it and educating myself and looking up other resources. And I decided that that would be the best thing for me. So in California, we have actually the strictest standards of any other state in the U.S. Yeah. And we go to school for four years and it's, or we, three years, eight, eight months, but it's year round school. So we actually go to school a lot longer than most other people do because we I have, have a law degree and I didn't go to school that long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We go to school longer, probably actually longer than most medical doctors because we we take, we're on a trimester system. So there's three semesters, um, in, in one year versus two. So, um, from there we have a multiple, just like with chiropractors, they have what they call qualify, um, clinical qualifying exams. So we, we do the same thing where, um, after our first year we have an exam, uh, second year we have an exam and then third year, we have an exam. So if you don't pass those exams, you get kicked out of school, which is wow. happened to actually happens to people. And it, um, and it's, it's, it's pretty sad when that happens. Um, but after, after that's done, we have to take our California licensing exam, which is just like any other professional exam, like your bar exam. And in that it's, um, you know, eight hours in a building somewhere yeah. locked, like, you know, high security lockdown, right. where everyone treats you like a criminal and you have exactly. to like ask for permission to go to the bathroom. Yep. So yeah, so that's, um, that's what that entails. And then I went a step and after that is done, that's called a LAC or licensed acupuncturist. Okay. And I went a step further and I actually finished my national certification, which is why I have the title of DIPLOM. So it's a diplomat of oriental medicine. And that entails four separate tests done at four separate times um, in different subjects. So we get tested on general um, oriental medical theory, acupuncture uh, points, herbal medicine, and also bio or Western medicine. Wow. That's... Yeah extensive. So, mm-hmm. so for those of you, I have had sessions with you. I know you, but for our listeners out there who they're trying to wrap their head around everything that you do, how would this culminate when a client comes into your office and says, I'm having problems with X? How does that work for you? How, what is your process? Right. So when a patient comes in and says, I'm having, let's just call it, um, heart palpit. No, actually, no, here's a, here's a real life example. Okay. Someone I've had a couple of patients come in recently with left lower abdominal pain. Now left lower abdominal pain, um, in Chinese medicine is a little bit different from how they would see it in Western medicine. But because I have what they call like an integrative degree and I have taken several classes in, uh, physiology, anatomy, pathophysiology, 
I'm trained to know uh, what that could, the potential diagnosis or differential diagnosis could be in Western medicine. So I will kind of see it from two different angles. So I'll be able to say, well, okay, this either is an issue with your colon or large intestine, or this is an issue, um, reproductive issue with your ovaries uh, in one way. And then in another way, I'll be able to say, okay, well, let's look at your tongue and feel your pulse. I'm going to palpate your abdomen and come up with a, a, a Chinese diagnosis. And from there, I can refer people back to the primary doctors for more testing or a gastroenterologist in this case, or I can give them um, treatments with acupuncture, uh, herbal medicine for specifically to fit their pattern or uh, recommend different, because I do all these other spiritual things, I also yeah. recommend guided meditation specifically for the what we call the sacral chakra, which is the area of that, that lower abdomen. Um, also essential oils, crystal therapy, working through emotional processes. Uh, the large intestine has a lot to do with letting go. So my ask them to, to do some reflection and take some inventory around what they're not letting go of or what they're having a difficulty releasing in their lives and kind of help them work through it. So it is, it is very, very holistic in the fact that I'm able to access all different aspects of what medicine can offer, um, from your most Western to your most woo-woo, and <laughs> help and 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 help get them the the care that they need. Yeah, and I love that. And I know for me, you have you know tuned into things that I wasn't even aware of, but you were absolutely on point at the time. So yeah, I love that intuitive. It's very Carolyn Mace in that regard that you can, you know, come in and see immediately like, oh, you have this going on and you need to address this. And that's why you have anxiety right now. And, you know, move through it in a very, it might seem woo-woo, but it's very um, realistic and practical manner, I guess I would say. Exactly. And I think it's definitely the model that medicine is taking forward because we can't yeah. just prescribe pills for people anymore and we can't just tell people they're going to be fine. There's so many different things that contribute to disease, whether that's, you know, a physical pathology and disease in that way, or if it's a spiritual and emotional, because we know that 90% uh, or more even of illness is stress related. Yeah. So stress is just our inefficiency of coping with our day-to-day -day life. <laughs> and so helping people to change their lifestyle, change their diet, um, incorporate some healthier lifestyle tips uh, is it can make all the difference in the world for people's overall happiness, actually. Oh, I totally agree. And especially just noticing your emotions and feeling your feelings in your body. I think that's one of the great lessons I've learned from you because, you know, for so long, I think in a, especially in this country, we have this, you know, you have the physical side and you have the emotional side and you should probably shut down the emotional side because it's not always serving you. And it's, you know, very separate from this. And that's just not the case. Science is telling us now that that is just absolutely not true. Your limbic system will be on fire. And unless you address that, nothing will get better. Exactly. And I completely am on point with that. So when people, I, I see this all too often is that you'll have people who've completely become detached from their emotional selves. And that is the worst thing that can happen to a person. Worse, I would say worse than cancer actually. Um, mm. Because when you can't feel your feelings, um, you don't have access to helping yourself because our feelings are the key and our emotions are the key to help unlock whatever's stored in our body. 
So um, I, I always say there's no such thing as a good or a bad emotion. They're, they just are emotions. And you have a right to your emotions. So the more you allow yourself to feel, which our culture really shuts people down, especially Absolutely. men, yes, you know, yes. especially with men. So in Western cultures, um, they're, they're de- taught from a very small age and not so much anymore. Definitely things are shifting in, in our culture, Yeah, but that crying is, is, um, you know, unattractive man, in, women, yeah. in women and in men. Yep. So, um, and I always say cry it out because crying moves cheap. It just helps your body to express. It gets that energy flowing. It's all that stuck stuff that doesn't need to be there anymore. And so even though it is exhausting to cry and it's yeah. kind of embarrassing to cry, it doesn't matter because the more you own your emotions and the more you let it out, the healthier and happier you're going to be in the end. Agreed. Yeah. And speaking of which, so next question. So what was the hardest thing that happened to you and how did you overcome it? Well, first, I wanted to um, say I don't believe anything happens to us. Ooh. So I believe, yeah, I actually believe that we create all of our of all of our situations. I love that so, you said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in in that way, it takes more it takes more of our power back, and it helps us take ownership of our lives and more responsibility for our behaviors, our choices, and our actions. Absolutely. So from um, the worst thing that um, that happened in my life, um, what from well. Worst things have happened since, but at the time it was <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I, the breakdown. Gotten, like when did the wall yeah. fall down? I guess right. Yeah, and I've gotten stronger, and so life is you know their life gets harder, but I've gotten stronger. So, uh, but at the time I was uh, twenty four years old, and I had gotten married to the wrong person, and I knew it. We were married for about eight months, and I my everything in my whole body was shutting down. I was super unhappy, really uncomfortable, um, and even knew before we got married that I was making the wrong decision. I just didn't know how to stand in my truth and how to stick yeah. to my convictions. So I ended up having to leave him and to move back to down to San Diego where I grew up and move into my parents' house. So that was, uh, that was very challenging for me. I went through a, a lot of, of feelings of failure, a lot of feelings of regret, um, a, a lot of self punishment in, in that and kind of just really beating myself up for making bad choices. So mm. how, yeah, it was, it was really difficult. And I, I wouldn't, I always say I wouldn't wish to divorce on anyone. It's, no. it's something that regardless, and I, again, I was very young. I didn't have children. I didn't own property, um, with him, but it was still such a transformational experience and such an opportunity for me to completely break down. And I was so glad I'm so grateful. I mean, hindsight's 2020. So looking back on it, I'm so grateful for that experience and, and to him for allowing me to work through my process, um, and to facilitate that with me because I learned a lot more about myself. I stopped pretending to be somebody else. Um, or I stopped mm-hmm. making my uh, com- compromising and being what other people needed me to be, um, and started living life more for myself. I think that so plays in with the acknowledging your emotions and I think our stories are very similar and maybe that's why I resonate with you because I know, you know, prior to my marriage, I was so focused on what do other people think of me and how will this look to other people if I get mm-hmm. this degree or this job or marry this person or live in this house versus, no, how does this make me feel? And what is like, as you just so astutely said, what is my own truth and accepting that and realizing that it doesn't matter what other people think because that opinion is not what's going to make me happy. Exactly. There's a wonderful saying out there that says, what other people think of me is none of my business. Yes. 
I think it's Martha Graham. Yeah. Yeah. My friend Deb quotes her all the time. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And I, I, so once I really started appropriating that as a motto, it really changed a lot of things for me. And, and I, I still care what people think, obviously. Yeah. I mean, we're human. That's part of being human. Yeah. Um, but doing it regardless, I think that's the, the, that's the key is feeling those feelings, having that inkling come up within you and doing it anyway. Yeah. And I think, too, something you said made me think of this. You know, the first time we have that breakdown, the first time the wall falls down, like many walls will fall down in our lifetime. But the first one's always the hardest. Agreed. Yeah. And some people, you know, they never get back up from that. They choose to be the victim and they choose to see it from one perspective real instead of realizing, as you did, you know, what can I learn from this? Where is my opportunity to grow and how do I pick myself up out of this? Exactly. And I think that people also need to allow themselves to grieve because Ooh, there yeah. is, there's a there is a time and there's a place for every emotion. And when we try to, uh, I think in, in new age philosophy or in um, those type groups or social groups, people tend to focus so much on the, opt- the optimistic part of things that we don't allow ourselves to also be very human in yeah. it. So it's like saying, here, I have this emotion and I'm going to be sad and I'm going to allow myself to be sad, but I'm not going to let myself go down to the depths where it becomes unproductive because then I'm just hurting myself. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. But then when we, you know, uh, gloss over it and make everything happy, I've heard Mastin Kip call that a spiritual bypass, you know, where you're not feeling your feelings, you're not going into the depth of your own grief. I think that that's an important, you know, piece of it. And I know Carrie Jane was on the program recently and she was saying that um, there are 40 different kinds of grief. And it's just one of those things, as we were saying earlier, you know, like buck up, like don't cry, like, you know, real men act this way type of mentality. We all do that. So little things like moving or, you know, leaving a job, even if it's a better job that you're going to, there's still a grief period, a process of change in there. Exactly. And that can be really small. In fact, I just moved my office from University Heights neighborhood where I had been for three years over to Old Town and I didn't think it was going to make as much impact on me emotionally. Yeah. <laughs> so I, um, I moved in one day on a Sunday and I opened back up for practice on a Monday morning. And so it was less than a 12 hour turnaround. And I really felt it in my body. I didn't give myself enough time to transition or to process that change or to become acclimated to my new surroundings. So I think that we do live life sometimes a little bit too fast. Yeah. And, um, and I, so it was a good lesson for me in really recognizing my process and allowing myself to slow down and to, to fully um, become oriented to, to this new way. Mm, I love that. And speaking of processes uh, or processes, I wanted to ask you, what are your personal spiritual rituals or practices? So every day I try to find something that I'm grateful for. That's gratitude is yeah. what they say is one way to just really open the heart and to, we can only manifest and attract from a, from that an abundant place. So that's, I try to bring that energy in every day. I pray several times a day. I, I feel like, um, <laughs> uh, and the prayers aren't, I mean, sometimes they're, they're more traditional prayers like the, our father, the hail Mary, um, and other times they're Ayurvedic or, um, other chants that, that I'll say, or just words. And then, um, or I'll pray for other people and, or situations around the world. So that's one 
I think prayer is really important. Yeah. And then we follow up prayer with uh, meditation, obviously. So some form of meditation, whether it's some days are great. I get to have like a nice, you know, 20 minute, 30 minute meditation. Other days it's about three minutes and it's in between, <laughs> it's in between people. Um, and it's just maybe some naughty Shona or alternate nostril breathing or just some really deep breaths or just trying to clear my head space or clear my mind, count my breath, things like that. So um, it, it varies because I really feel that uh, routine is important, but right. life happens and we have to be flexible and adjust to that. And so just because life is happening doesn't mean you can't still do your your, your rituals and your practices, but they might have to be altered or adjusted to fit that day's needs. Hey, Moving Forward listeners, if you're enjoying today's episode, consider supporting the podcast. You can purchase a copy of the Corporate Clichés Adult Coloring Book or try out Amazon Prime or Audible using one of my affiliate links, which you can find in the write-up for any of the episodes at bemovingforward.com. Yeah, exactly. That day or how you're feeling that day and just recognizing, oh, I'm really tired today. Maybe I need to sit quietly for a little bit longer or, you know, maybe you're on fire and it's go, 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 go. And, you know, that's, yeah, would be something that held you back that day. I think that's an important acknowledgement as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think for also for a lot of people who are very sensitive or empathic or intuitive, it really is important to take time every day to get very grounded, to really Mm. feel in your body, to feel safe in your physical body, to go out into the world um, and make sure that I used to really believe in a lot about protection and that we, you know, really need to go out into the world protected and not so much anymore. Cause I, and now my belief is, is that the more we go out on the defense, the more we actually attract things that we need to be defended from. So, oh, wow. I um, love that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the more that you go out there and you just feel like I am safe, I am safe. I'm in my body. I'm here. Um, I, you know, God only gives me what I can handle. I'm fully capable, ready and willing, able to tackle whatever challenges come my way today. I'm going to be successful at everything I do. If a, if a challenge or an obstacle comes my way today, I'm accepting that as a gift, you know, versus, versus something that went wrong or something that I did. I think one of the biggest mistakes that, um, again, um, more uh, conscious or aware people make uh, is that something bad happens and they immediately think, what did I do to attract this? Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So what did I do? I must have done something wrong. I must have had a wrong thought, a wrong feeling. Um, and, and that's also very disempowering. So when something happens, um, whether big or small, I, I ask myself, okay, where, where could this have come from? (laughs) What, what have I been doing (laughs) that could have brought this in? Or maybe it's not, maybe it's not anything that we did either, you know, and those are some things, uh, to, to, to take responsibility for as well is that life happens and, uh, it's still an opportunity for growth. No, definitely. And I know there've been bad times more recently than not where I've asked the question, what are you here to teach me? What am I supposed Mm. to be learning? What am I not looking at? Why that's must be why you're here. So there's something that I'm not looking at. Exactly. Yeah, I like that. So speaking of in that kind of uh, genre, when have you let limiting beliefs hold you back? And what gave you the courage to let them go? When I graduated from my master's program, I 
had to get out into the world and start making money. So when I was doing this, I really did not want to be in my own private practice. In fact, I was super resisting it. Uh, I thought it was a horrible idea. I never, when I was in school, I never wanted to be my own boss. And I thought that uh, it would be much safer and easier to have stability to work for somebody else. Okay. And so that was my limiting belief. My limiting belief was that I need to work for somebody else or I can't do this on my own or I'm not going to survive if I'm out on my own. Okay. So how I got through that was I just was forced to do it. <laughs> I, I didn't have any other options. Well, I, 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 I mean, I could have. I could have had other options. I, I don't want to say that. But um, I do, wasn't seeing any other options. How about that? Okay. And uh, I felt very much like the – again, I, I don't want to say the universe was, was, was putting me down this path. Clearly, something within me was putting me on this path because it was the path I needed to be on yeah. uh, for my highest and best good and to really actualize my potential – and to share my gifts with people. So I kept getting more and more clients, more and more patients. Um, I was uh, becoming more more well-known and becoming more successful. And and th- the whole time being like, I don't want to do this. You can't make me do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, and I was doing it. It was the funniest thing. <laughs> and then I started to realize um, cause I, you know, I'm a, I'm a Capricorn sun sign. So I'm very like numbers driven and, and business driven. Right. And I started to look at some numbers and see some things and, and start taking uh, a little bit more stock of, of what was happening in within my business and started to realize that, wait a minute, like I'm actually surviving and not only am I surviving, I'm doing pretty well at this. Yeah. So I need to just let go of this fear that I can't make this happen, that I can't be my own boss. Um, and just embrace where what I've created and continue with that flow. I love that you're the accidental entrepreneur. I was absolutely, <laughs> despite so, my own, yeah, despite my own fears and limiting beliefs, I still happened. <laughs> so, how do you feel about that now? Would you ever work for anybody else at this point? No, actually. Okay. Um, I it's it's so funny. Um, one of my uh, girlfriends that I share office space with, we we lament to each other because um, it is really difficult to be your have your own business and have your oh, own yeah. practice, and it, you have to wear every hat, and it's, yeah. it's just a lot of work. It, it's I, I probably. Um, work in with people of uh, 40 hours a week and then an, an additional maybe uh, 15 hours doing other things. Ad- admin so stuff. admin yeah. work. Yeah. So it's just, it's a lot of work. Um, and so we, we talk about how, oh man, I have these wishes every now and then I, that some famous doctor would just come swoop me up and take me into their practice and I would just have a free flow. And flow give me a secretary. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I could work in an ivory tower somewhere, um, you know, and I'll have to do all of this. Um, but in, in reality, uh, I did try to work for um, some, some nonprofit groups doing community style acupuncture. Yeah. And uh, it, it wasn't, I loved the patients. I just didn't like the idea of, of have someone else telling me who, um, who I needed to treat, when I need to treat and how much I should charge and what I should do. So it, it, it was kind of one of those things where I, I realized that that was really limiting all the, the facets that I bring to the table, all the opportunities I have to help people mm. in different ways besides acupuncture. Right. So, and I think that that's what makes me good at what I do is the fact that I can pull from so many different areas, um, versus when I would, if I worked for somebody else in a, in a pain management clinic, um, or for workman's comp or, uh, doing some sort of other cosmetic acupuncture or something, um, or working with athletes only, I would be very pigeonholed 
and yeah. and, and very fo- and very forced to only practice one style in one way. Mm. Well said. So when have you failed? This might kind of coincide with the hardest question I asked you, but when have you failed? Maybe another example, and yet it changed everything for the better. What you were saying about being pigeonholed kind of made me think of this. Yeah. the I think the biggest uh, failure that I had was in my undergrad when I was, I actually changed my, my, my major from music to anthropology. So I was on this really strong path towards music and uh, had been studying. And it was, it was the entire focus of my life, actually. I was a percussionist. I played okay. the drums. I was a mallet specialist. I played marimba, xylophone, and jazz bands. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, orchestra, symphonies. Um, I was really hyper competitive. I was very involved in the competitive scene. I was, um, I played in drum corps or or DCI, and I also was a world um, champion for the Winter Guard International. So I had worked a lot in ensembles and a lot in groups, and that was where I really thought that my life was headed was to be this professional musician. And, um, I had transferred schools. I was going to school in Riverside for two years and I transferred to Berkeley. And when I got to Berkeley, I realized that their, their music program wasn't as strong actually as, as in Riverside. And mm-hmm. even though it's a great school for so many other things, it just wasn't, um, what I was, it wasn't a performance based school. Okay. So I had a little mini meltdown, um, and a little existential <laughs> crisis over who I was and where I was going. Oh and yeah. Yeah. You know how yep. it is when you're 20. Yeah. yeah no, I had that too. Yeah. Yeah. It's really real. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah. these are very sad and scary. So a um, whole big uh, emphasis on what's my purpose and where am I going. And so I had – and I had invested so much of my time and my energy and even my money in, into becoming a musician and to becoming this, this percussionist. And that was how I had identified myself for a really long time. And it was where I felt like I belonged. And so – having it became more when I, th- I really think that when your passion becomes more painful than mm. fun, that's when it's time to reevaluate. That's quotable, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And, and thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and to reevaluate. So I realized that my passion was becoming more painful than, than fun and, and, and not purposeful anymore. So, um, I, because I, because there's just, it was so hard, you know, it was so difficult for me. There's you have to, with music, you have to practice so much. I mean, with, with anything you do, you know, right. to become an expert in anything. Um, but it just wasn't, it wasn't fun for me anymore. Yeah. And I I made the decision actually halfway through my junior year to switch from music to anthropology. And after I did, I actually felt really good about it. I felt a lot lighter and music became more fun again. Um, I still continued to play. I, I got a minor in music, so I still continued to play for the rest of my college, um, years, but I, it was interesting. I knew, um, my last concert was, uh, my, my senior year, I played my last concert in a Javanese gamelan band and I, I just knew it was done. Like I had that like, you haven't total played since. sense. I've not played in a group sense. Wow. I've not played professionally, competitively, anything uh, since. So, or for other people actually. So, and I knew, and I was 22 and I, I, and I hit the last hit on the drum and I was like, completion, closure, done. So it was wow. cool. I, I, I felt like, yes, it was a failure, but I felt like uh, towards the end of all of that and working through it, I felt so good about my decision yeah. and it really did help. It really did help free me from this lifestyle and this way of being that I had done for 
I started playing drums when I was 10. So for, for, um, you know, 12 years and how I'd identified for myself, um, for 12 years. And it really helped open me up to so much more uh, possibilities out there. It helped me to see the other gifts and other talents that I had that I'd always known were there, but I wasn't really focusing on them because I thought I had to do music. Right. And it sounds like you were really focused on winning in a sense, too, like competition and being the best and driven versus the joy of the music lighting you up. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it was, I remember one of my um, instructors, I might've been one of my conductors or something at some point in my college career had said to me, you know, there's always going to be people out there that are better than you. They're always yeah. going to be practice, practicing when you're asleep and doing more than you. So just let go, you know? And yeah. I couldn't handle that. That was just too much for oh, me. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Most people would free them, but no, you're like, no, no, that's not acceptable. No, it was like, I have to do more. I have to be better. But then I shouldn't <laughs> sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, how, what can I cut out? Eating? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So it was, yeah, too much, too much internally generated pressure um, for me. And, and so then, you know, it helped me, it did, it really freed me up to explore other avenues and other opportunities, which I don't think I would have done if I hadn't, hadn't I failed at music. Mm, and I'm using fail in air quotes, I hope. Yeah, definitely. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we talked about your spiritual rituals and practices, but how did spirituality play a role in your journey at large? You mentioned growing up Roman Catholic. Were there rituals that you you know, kept or beliefs that you kept from that upbringing? Is it more religious, more spiritual? How has that played out for you? So my parents... Um, baptized me as a, uh, as a Catholic when I was a baby. And I went through my first communion and about the time that I was 11, both of my parents, um, had their, what we call like awakening. I'm sure everybody on who's listening to this, um, podcast knows what, what, what their awakening, what, what their awakening yeah, definitely. is. Um, so they had their awakening and they started to look into other culture, uh, not cultures, I'm sorry, other religions. And they first experimented with Unitarian universalism. So that was kind of my first, um, stepping away from, uh, Catholicism. So that was interesting. It was, it was a little bit too much for me. I was kind of used to the structure of the Mm -hmm. Catholic church and I'm a big fan of ritual and ceremony. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. So I was really, really missing that, that element in it. And, uh, so that was kind of sad for me. Um, and then I got really interested in Judaism for a while. One of my best friends, um, was going through her, you know, um, bat mitzvah. And so I was really interested in that religion, um, while my parents were exploring other avenues. And then my parents became really involved in spiritualism. they had always kind of dabbled in it a little bit. And, um, what is spiritualism? How would you define that? Spiritualism is, um, a, is a new thought or a new age, um, type religion that was started around the time of, um, like science, science of the mind, so okay. it was is very very similar in that era. So it was around like the mid 1800s, I believe. Um, started in New York um, by two sisters. I call them the Banger Sisters, and uh, they were communicating with a traveling salesman that was um, haunting their house. <laughs> and they were okay. Getting wrapped under- <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of like a you know sideshow type thing that people would start to come in and anyway they would um, hold seances and, and it just grew from there. So um, I'm sure if there's some people who are familiar with spiritualism, there's a big spiritualist camp called Lilydale. Um, Lilydale is still in New York, and they have um, where the Banger Sisters were kind of from that area, and um, 
they still hold a whole bunch of like um, seances and classes and, and, spirit and spiritual development and whatnot. So basically, spiritualism is uh, loosely non-denominational Christian. We There's not really a lot of emphasis on Jesus. Okay. Um, however, there is emphasis on the higher power. The biggest uh, principle or takeaway from the religion is, is that uh, communication with the so-called dead is a fact and that life exists beyond death. Mm. I like that. I got to take that in for a minute. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So from there, as long as you hold that belief to be true um, and that there's a higher power, then you could call yourself a spiritualist. Okay. (laughs) Well, it's so So. interesting because in Christianity, they talk about resurrection and how life continues, but it's more of an aside. I mean, it isn't, it isn't, you know what I mean? So to say that this is an accepted truth and to put some emphasis on it, I think that is unique. It, it is. It definitely is. And spiritualists, uh, ch- all spiritualist churches, regardless of wherever you go, wh- in, anyone in San Diego and then outside of that as well, there's a very specific ritual format. So it's um, a lot of the, you know, they sing a lot of the same Christian um, hymnals. They have a lecture service or an inspirational sermon at the end, or usually, at the, I'm sorry, at the beginning, they start with a uh, healing. And this is regardless, like, whether it's spiritualism or spiritism, which is more of the South American version of spiritualism. Okay. Okay. Um, they they all do this. They all start with a, with a healing, and it's it's kind of like a, a hands off healing, actually. So um, you know when you go to like other... like Reiki, like... yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. It's exactly like Reiki. Yeah. So, but they've been doing Reiki since like you know 1880 or whatever. Right. So um, yeah, they start with the healing, and then they'll just place their hands over you and work in your electromagnetic field or in your aura. They'll work with your chakras, um, and just kind of help to bring in more unconditional love and kind of hold space for you basically. So that's how it starts. And then there's the lecture service. And at the end of a lecture service, they have what's called greetings or spirit messages. And so people, um, different psychics and mediums will get up on the platform and they'll give readings to little mini readings to all of the members in the congregation. So it's really interesting because you could just be going there for whatever reason. And at the end of it, you're, someone tells you, Hey, I have a message from your grandpa. He says, you know, good luck with your test tomorrow or something. <laughs> so very yeah, John Edwards it's very different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a little, it's a little different, but it's pretty great. Um, cause it's just a, a nice reminder that, that we're just, we're continuously proving um, the evidence that life exists on the other side. Oh, I love that. Very cool. I like that a lot. And what do you personally think happens when we die? Okay. So, (laughs) um, yeah, this is a loaded question. I love it. Um, So because I am a psychic medium um, and I have had visions of the other side or spirit world, and because I do communicate so much with people who have crossed over, my view of, um, let's just call it heaven, is uh, is pretty strong. I I have a very strong view on this. So, my what I've what I've been shown and what I believe to be true is that once we uh, pass away from the body, um, our soul is eternal. So it's just like energy cannot be created nor destroyed. Right. So the soul leaves the body. The body, you know, we we say ashes to ashes, dust to dust, just starts to disintegrate. We are no we are no longer of our body. However, our spirit is made up of our ego, which and all the lessons that we've learned in this lifetime and our personality traits, as well as um, an 
elevated sense, which is our higher self. So those two energies kind of come back together. Um, and when we pass, you are usually escorted to the other side by some sort of guide. That guide may be somebody that you knew in this lifetime, um, such as like if your parents died before you and you were close to them or your grandparents, or just somebody else. Um, like a lot of husbands will come back for their wives or vice versa. Okay. So somebody to help, um, help kind of you get you there basically. Cause it's a little disorienting being out of body. Um, and then you go into what we call the light. So anybody who's ever seen ghost, the movie ghost, yeah. um, yeah. Uh, with Patrick Swayze knows kind of what that, what that light looks like. It's, yeah. it's just this very, very bright, um, energy and it's just into another, basically another dimension. So, um, I believe that heaven is, uh, just, a, it's a, just a dimension basically. Um, that we are, we are basically free flowing thought forms so we can go anywhere and do anything that we want to do. Um, and that after we pass, usually there's, we're, we're met with our other spirit guides or we, we want to call them guardian angels, um, that help bring us back to our star group or our soul group, uh, which mm. is comprised of people that we usually have, uh, multiple lives with or our cohort basically. Okay. So we will go in with them and then there's like this big welcoming and a big, a lot of love there. And then we start doing our work. Basically, once we've had time to acclimate to our new um, environment and to reconnect with some of our friends and family there, um, and to make sure that our family and friends back on the earth plane are doing okay, then, um, and, and are moving through their grief process, then, uh, we're able to really start doing our work again. And so I, you know, a lot of people think that heaven is this beautiful place where we just sit around on a cloud and play a, you know, harp. <laughs> right. Um, but actually it's, it's a school. It's just another school. Yeah. And, uh, there's libraries and teachers and classrooms and just like how there is here, um, where, where we're, we're continuing our, our learning basically. So, um, and trying to actualize, uh, our best selves. So what's our highest potential becoming the best versions of ourselves. And once we've tapped into every potential possibility out there, then we're able to uh, converge with um, what I call the cosmic soup, uh, which is the one, basically. Mm-hmm. So um, that might take a long time. So yeah. <laughs> usually we keep coming back here, uh, refine in what I call it, what I call a refinement process. So oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's just, we're just refining and refining and, and getting better and stronger um, and more loving and more compassionate towards ourselves and others. Um, being, living up to our, uh, basically like self-actualizing. Mastery learning, as they say. Yeah, yes, I like that. Exactly. That was a big answer to a big question, I guess. So <laughs> yeah, you know, um, there's a really, there's really, there's some really great books for people who, um, might be listening and thinking like this woman's absolutely crazy. Um, and they are written by a psychiatrist, psychologist, uh, named John Newton. And he was a hypnotherapist as well. And he did this huge case study over the course of several years, um, where he hypnotized people back, um, into what they call the life between lives. and or to the other side and he basically takes an account um from all i mean like uh, he interviews hundreds of people and it takes an account of what their experiences are and in their crossing process and what the other side looks like and um what our higher selves are it's it's phenomenal read it's really interesting very there's two books one's called journey of souls and the other one's called destiny of souls 
I am absolutely going to look that up because I'm a big fan. I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Brian Weiss out of the University yeah, of, of Miami. And I yes. love his work. I've read all of his books, but I had not heard of John Newton. So that will definitely, listeners, be on the website after this. I'm going to check that out myself. That sounds fascinating. So we're about at the end, but I do want you, for any of our listeners who are interested in reaching out to Natalie and learning more about her work, can you give us your website? And we'll also have it, of course, on the Vuavant site. My website is www.natalievale.com. So very easy to find. I'm very Googleable. And <laughs> um, yeah, and on my website, you'll find links to YouTube videos. You'll see links to uh, events that I'm hosting. You'll also see my phone number, email address, and a link to my online scheduler. Beautiful. I love it. Thank you so much for being here. This was fantastic. Thank you so much, Kristen. And it was a pleasure to be on your show. And listeners, thank you. Until next time, this is Kristen Nepper. Thank you for being here and Satnam. Now it's time for you to move forward and discover the extraordinary in you. Moving Forward is produced by John Lim and BeMovingForward.com. All rights reserved.